Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. As I mentioned earlier, this Sunday on the Christian calendar is known as Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter where we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. This Sunday is called Palm Sunday because of the use of palm fronds from palm trees that we're going to find in our text this morning in Matthew 21. Would you turn with me there this morning? Matthew chapter number 21. We're going to look at a familiar Palm Sunday passage, Matthew chapter number 21, beginning in verse number one. But we're going to really, we're going to take in some ways maybe a little bit of a different angle to our Palm Sunday message than maybe some things that I've done before on this day. And Matthew 21. We're going to look at the first 11 verses, Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. I'll read verse number 1. If you'll join me in responsive reading, reading verse number 2 aloud with me, then I'll read verse 3, and then you join me on verse 4 all the way until I finish at verse 11. And uh, you know what? Because what happens if I do it that way, that means I'm going to read on 11 and someone's going to forget and be the only one reading aloud on verse 12 and feel really embarrassed. Let's flip it. You read with me on verse 1, all right? So that way we don't have... Have you ever been there? You've been the one reading a verse when nobody, everybody else stopped? Anybody been there? Or how about the, uh, you didn't realize that they said you may be seated and you kept standing up while the rest of the auditorium was sitting down? Mr. Cyprian, you ever done that? He's saying no over there. He's the, he's the biggest culprit. Because when you're sitting in the front, you don't see a bunch of people sitting down in front of you, right? So Mr. Cyprian will just be standing there while the rest of the auditorium sits. Matthew 21, verse number one. Let's read that aloud together. Then you join me on the odd verses. Ready? Begin. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethpage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, you shall say, The Lord hath need of them. And straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt the foal of an ass." And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way, others cut down branches from the trees, and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. I always, I, probably until the day that I die, every time I read this passage and, and, uh, and, and we have Palm Sunday and we see where they, Jesus is, is on a borrowed donkey riding, I've been there at the Garden of Gethsemane, what they believe would have been the path that he would have ridden and as they threw their garments and they threw those palm fronds, those leaves there in front of Jesus to make way as he, he entered into Jerusalem and, uh, and they cried, Hosanna! Hosanna, a, a word of praise. They were lauding him as an incoming king. By the way, in just a few days, they will shout, some of the same crowd will shout, crucify him, crucify him. 
public opinion can be fickle, can't it? And, and, and they, they're crying, Hosanna! And I'll, I'll never forget, probably until I die, it was a few years ago, we got in the car on Palm Sunday, and we were driving home right here. We turned left onto Bison, and our son, who was probably at the time four years old, he, he said, I said, what'd you learn in church? No, I didn't say that. We were driving, and he saw a palm tree on Bison. He said, hey, Dad, there's a palm tree. That's what they used when Jesus rode in on a donkey. And I thought, man, I was pretty proud of him. Man, my son, he's, he knows the Bible. That's right, son. They used palm leaves, didn't they? they they laid fraud, they laid leaves down in front of him, and, and, and then he said, and then they shouted, Susanna, Susanna. <laughs> so then I wasn't as proud about my Bible instruction of my child's life. They didn't cry Susanna, they cried Hosanna as the king came in. And this morning's message on Palm Sunday is entitled, What a Difference. What a difference. I want to draw your attention to verse number seven. They brought the ass, the borrowed donkey, and, they, and the colt, and put on them their clothes, borrowed clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the ways, and cut down branches from the trees, and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before cried, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I want to draw your attention to verse number seven. Just some of the things there, everything about Christ was so different from really our expectations, but as humans, from their expectations. The Jews at that time were looking in their Messiah, in their Savior, they were looking for a military leader. They were looking for a political leader, someone that was going to come and bring peace to the turmoil of the land to give them power. It's why James and John's mom came up to them and said, hey, when you come into your kingdom, can my boys sit at your right hand and your left? Basically, can you give them high-ranking cabinet positions when you're elected president? And Jesus said, what are you talking about? You really don't understand who I am, do you? You don't understand how I came and why I came. He was very different from their expectations. They were looking for a mighty king, and here, just days before his crucifixion and his resurrection, he's welcomed as a king, yes, but what a difference from what they had expected in a king. I want to suggest by, by way of introduction here, he was a different king, and we'll get where we're going. He was a different king. When you think of a king, what do you expect in a king? We might expect if he was going to come into a, a city to the praise and laud of men, we might accept him riding on a royal steed, something very impressive with a very ornate saddle and ornate, beautiful flowing clothes and robes and maybe a crown, an ornate crown. We might expect him wielding a terrifying sword surrounded by guards and subjects. Or maybe not, wouldn't be a horse, but we might expect him to be carried in by his subjects on a throne as he walked in to that place. We might expect great displays of wealth and power in a king, right? When you think of a king, I don't know about you, that's what I think of. I think of great power and great wealth, very impressive, and people there to, to do everything that he needed, many servants around him. And what do we find here as he's lauded as a king? A week before his resurrection, what do we find in Jesus? A lowly, humble servant, riding on a borrowed donkey, not a royal steed. With his friend's clothing acting as his saddle, we find no sword or impressive crown. Soon he will wear a crown, a crown of thorns, but not a beautiful, bejeweled, ornate crown that a king should be wearing. 
We find no crown, and rather than inflict pain upon his opponents with a mighty sword, he will humbly receive undeserved wounds from Roman soldiers, and a spear will pierce his side. What a different king. In fact, when one of his subjects does grab a sword and tries to defend him and cuts off the ear as he's about to be betrayed, just a, not, not many hours after this, in the same, same time frame, the same week, not too far after this, one of his followers, Peter, will grab a sword and try to defend him with the sword. And what will Jesus do? The man that is about to take him and imprison him, Jesus will go and heal the man's ear. What a different king. Not defending himself, but helping others. He is received as a king for a brief moment in time, but what a difference. What a different king. And usually on Palm Sunday, we focus just on kind of this passage of Scripture, and a week later, we focus almost exclusively on passages relating to the resurrection. But this morning, as we consider our king, and as we remember him in communion in a few moments, I want us to take a walk through his entire earthly life and see the great difference in Jesus. I want us to really think about just about every age and stage and aspect of his life and think about the difference and why do I want to bring uh, attention to the difference as I studied the Palm Sunday passage in preparation for this, it hit me, what a different king. Not, not a king like any, unlike any other king we've ever seen, but why do these differences matter so much? It's because not just he was different, but I want us to see by the time that we're done the great difference that he wants to make in your life. You see, just about everything else in this world, our flesh and pleasure and pursuits, they offer the same things, but they end up with the same disappointments. But Jesus is different, and I want us to see the differences. Not only was he a different king, I want to go back to the beginning and suggest to you he had a different conception. Hundreds of years before Christ's earthly birth, birth, Jesus had a different conception. Hundreds of years before he was born, what did the prophet Isaiah say? He prophesied, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, that's a little different, and bear a son and shall call his name, what church? Emmanuel. The first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew's Gospel, says this, Now the birth of Jesus was on this wise, when as his mother was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Never before and never since has a child been conceived in such a way. What a difference. But he didn't just have a different conception. He had a different childbirth, didn't he? He had a different childbirth. How many of you were born like me in a hospital? Let me just see. Raise your hand. You were born in a hospital. How many of you were not maybe born in a hospital, but you were born in a building of a structure, a home, a birthing center, something with walls and a roof? How many of you, if you weren't born in a, in a hospital, you were born, how many of you were born outdoors? Anybody born outdoors? Oh, I need to hear this story. We've got one back here. <laughs> you know that's going to be a good story, right? If someone's born outdoors, there's something interesting to that story. One? Did I see one? All right, you got to see me in the lobby afterwards and tell me that story. <laughs> How many of you, you spent your first night sleeping in an animal feeding trough? Probably none of us, right? A little bit of a different childbirth, wasn't it? No room for him in the inn, and we always talk about that and sing about it at Christmas time. All of those things, I would say that Jesus' birth was a bit unique. I don't think that any of us had complete strangers show up to our place of birth because of astronomical activity. 
They saw a certain star, and so they said, oh, I, I came and I heard you had, there was, he had a unique childbirth. There was a different childbirth, a different conception, a, a different childbirth. He also had a different childhood. You know, we're not told much about Jesus' childhood in Scripture. Really, the four Gospels and all of the New Testament, you can find, aside from the birth of Christ, the events surrounding the birth, you can find just a handful of verses that talk about from that season until his earthly ministry begins. Really small amount. But you have to imagine he had a unique childhood, didn't he? He was 100% man and 100% God. It's called the hypostatic union. In, in theological terms. It's something that our finite brains really struggle to comprehend. He hungered and he thirsted, but yet he could have, he could have called 10,000 angels. He, he bled like you and I, and he, he knew pain, but he also raised people from the dead and healed them. The amazingness of our Savior, but you have to stop and think what that meant as a child was that he needed someone to care for him as a child, and he needed someone to feed him, and he needed to learn to, to roll over and to walk and to crawl and all of these things. And you have to imagine, not only was it a unique childhood for him, but what about his siblings? Can you imagine having a perfect sibling? Not one that thinks they're perfect. Many of you have one of those, right? But one who's actually perfect. Can you imagine? And, and it really stinks, especially if he's younger than you, because when you have a little sibling that can't talk, they're awesome because you can blame everything on them. But you couldn't blame it on Jesus. Who, 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 who did this? Who, who punched a hole in the wall of anger? It was Jesus. And Mom and Mary and Joseph were like, okay, we know that's not true. Who really was it? Well, who started it? Who started it? Jesus started it. James, who really started it? Okay, I started it. A unique childhood. Growing up as, as the sinless son of God, but yet going, the Bible says, he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He grew physically just like you and I did in, in his human form, in his human flesh. And, and a unique childhood, Joseph and Mary never had to worry about him lying to them. He never disobeyed them. He never talked back to them in disrespect. Never selfishly stole a sibling's toy out of sinful anger or selfishness. What a unique childhood. While Scripture doesn't tell us much about his childhood, for all intents and purposes, it, it must have been relatively unremarkable. As an adult, we, I, I say that because as an adult, when he came back to his hometown to preach, here's what people said. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Hey, who is this guy? He's coming back. When he came back to his hometown, it talks about the fact that they didn't really receive him, came unto his own, and his own received him not. When he came back to his hometown, they, they, who is this guy? What? Isn't that, remember his dad ran Joseph and Sons Construction, remember that? And he was the one that always was running around the work site doing those things. Who is he? He's coming back to preach to us the kingdom of God? That's just Mary's son. That's just, and, and other places they said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Jesus was from a hometown of about a, a couple hundred people. It was a really small town, really unimpressive place. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? It was a pretty unremarkable childhood, but a, a different childhood nonetheless. Isn't that the unknown boy from that really common, unimpressive family? One of the only stories of his childhood into his 20s is told in Luke chapter number 2. The Bible says this, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast, and when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind him in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. How many of you have lost a child somewhere? 
for even a small period of time. I've told you the story. I won't go into it. We lost Trey one time at downtown Disney. Lost him another time going into the gates of Disneyland or Disney World. Disney's bad for losing children with my kids, I guess. And, and we've at a store in that panic. Well, don't feel too badly. Jesus' parents lost him one time too. They were leaving. They were in Jerusalem. They were leaving to go back home. And Jesus stayed behind and it says they didn't know it. Bad parents. Let's see where it goes on. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And you can just picture it. Joseph coming. Have you seen Jesus? No, I haven't seen him. I, I, I thought he was with the cousins. I don't know. Hey, Mary, have you seen Jesus? No, I told you to make sure he was with us. No, I told you. Have you ever been there? All right. He had this, his parents were just like you and me. And, and they lose him, and they, they don't know where he's at. And it says, when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days, he was gone for three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. All that heard him were astonished. What a different child. The doctors, the, the most uh, uh, educated of society, were sitting around astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. You can, you can sympathize with Mother Mary, right? You can sympathize with her there. And, and she's like, why did you? And I said, Mother Mary, I don't mean that in a religious term. I mean that as her title. And so don't, don't stress out. I don't worship Mary as, as being some deity of, you know, when I said that, that sounded a little strange. But, but, but she, why did you do, you ever been there? You finally, we lost, as I mentioned, Trey for like 20 minutes. I can't imagine three days, the feeling of relief. But then it's like, where were you? How could, why did you do this to us? We've been worried, sick, right? We were sorrowful. And notice what Jesus says. And he said unto them, how is it that you sought me? Why were you looking for me? Wish you not that I must be about my father's business. I would say that was a little bit of a different childhood. How many of you and how many of me can I imagine our child spending a day at doctors, a doctor's convention holding the attention of the entire conference with our child's wisdom and knowledge? I don't know about you, that wouldn't, I wouldn't be expecting that from my 12-year-old. Most of us are just happy if our 12-year-olds do their science homework. And he's there holding their attention and they're amazed at his wisdom and his understanding. What a difference. He had a different career. As he continued to grow before he was a different king, as he, on Palm Sunday, as the palms were laid out, he, he had a different career. What do we define as career success? We define career success as moving up the ladder. Is that what we say? More possessions, more position, more power. The more servants that we have, the better our career is, a bigger portfolio. The perf the, the, all the more employees that answer to us. And by the way, there's nothing wrong if God is giving you position and influence. Use that for his glory. I'm not suggesting that it's wrong as a Christian to work hard and for God to bless you to succeed in business. God's people ought to be some of the hardest workers and, and, and be some of those that make the biggest impact at their places of work. I'm all for that. But we view career success in those terms, don't we? And if we want to call it, it's really his ministry, but if we want to call it his public career, if you will, that which people interacted, what did Jesus' career look like? The person who has most perfectly fulfilled their purpose for living in the history of humanity didn't have an earthly possession to call his own. The Bible says he had a pillow to lay his head on. He had a pillow, a stone for a pillow. He had a pillow to lay his head on. That didn't make sense either. My brain's not working this morning very well, is it? He had a stone for a pillow. 
He was the servant. He had no portfolio. His three-year earthly ministry was spent being misunderstood, lied about, falsely accused, and as he was about to be killed, completely betrayed by those he had invested in the most. The, the, the associates, the ministry partners, if you will, if we want to put it in secular terms, the business associates that he had invested in the most on a daily basis, all day, every day for three years, when, it was, when he was at his lowest moment, they all walked away from him. That doesn't sound like a very successful public life. He had a different career, didn't he? Doesn't sound like success to me. Right after that, of course, we saw how he was a different king, but just a few short days after being lauded as a king, he was a different criminal. A different criminal. What do I mean by that? Completely innocent. The only person to ever be on death row who had never committed a single sin. Now, there have been innocent people on death row throughout history, but never one that could say, I've never sinned in my whole life. Capital punishment for a man who had only ever done good, put to death for wanting to bring life. He was unjustly detained and falsely accused. The mob demanded his life. What did Paul say about this criminal? You don't hear the judge saying this too often, I find, and then being put on death row, I find no fault in him. He's innocent, not guilty. And what did the mob cry? Crucify him! Crucify him! A different criminal. He who had never sinned died a criminal's death, the most painful and humiliating death that was reserved for the worst of the worst of society on that day. He hung on a tree, taking the penalty of the crimes that you and I had committed so that we wouldn't have to pay for those crimes. That's a different type of criminal, if you will, someone that takes the penalty for someone else. He paid for your crimes and for mine. The payment of our crimes is death, the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. We are— we are on, on, on death row, if you will, according to Scripture. The wages, the payment of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Somebody has to die for your sins, and somebody has to die for my sins. I can choose to die and pay for my own sins, the Bible says, by spending eternity in hell, or I can take the gift of the one who didn't deserve to die for my sins, but willingly gave his life. They didn't take it. And he said, I will die for your sins. Will you accept the free gift. The payment of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He took your penalty, the penalty of your crimes so that you didn't have to pay for those. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He who knew no sin was made sin, took upon sin, so that he who was totally righteous could impute that righteousness into our lives. And the only way we do that is by grace, through faith, accepting the free gift of salvation. On Palm Sunday, I want you to stop and think about what mercy, what love. How many people do you know that if you were on death row would say, let him out, let me in? If you were to be put to death tomorrow, would say, no, 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 take my life. What love, what grace, what forgiveness, what a savior. A different type of criminal, one that wasn't a criminal at all. He was the sinless son of God, but he, he paid the death 
that belong to a criminal and then a different conqueror. There is no religious leader throughout history who has claimed to conquer death and rise again from the dead other than Jesus Christ. No human who has worshiped or revered ever won that battle and defeated death. Not Muhammad, not Gandhi, not Confucius, not Buddha, not Joseph Smith, not the Dalai Lama, no Pope, no pastor, not Billy Graham, not the Mother Mary, no one except Jesus Christ, which is what we celebrate next Sunday on Easter. And, and, and as I mentioned earlier, we don't have to wait to celebrate that next Sunday. You can celebrate it today and every day. But Paul talked about our conqueror this way in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, speaking to the church at Corinth. He said, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. What is he saying? Go back to that verse, if you will, please. What is he saying? He's saying we don't deserve to conquer death. Those of us that are mortal don't deserve immortality in our own strength. Sinful man cannot pay for his own sins, or he can pay for them, but he cannot, he cannot redeem himself. He cannot save himself. Sinful man. He's saying corruption shall not inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. This is a, a strange thing. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. If we know Jesus as Savior, not in our own strength will we make it to heaven, but in His, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, in what we call the rapture of the church, the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, corrupt people raised incorruptible. How is that? And we shall all be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought, here it is, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? In our own strength, all we have waiting for us is death. And eternity, the Bible says, in one of two places, heaven or hell. But because of our sins, we can't get, make, earn our way to heaven on our own. But there was a different conqueror. Oh, many a man has been revered and worshiped. Many a man has been asked for his autograph and taken a picture and sold his memorabilia and, and been so excited for celebrities, for people to meet them. Many a man has been worshipped and, and, and revered, sometimes in secular society and sometimes in religions and in denominations. And many a man has, has written books and writings and claimed to be speaking on behalf of God, but none of them conquered death. We serve a different conqueror. Jesus is the only one. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Here it is. But thanks be to God. Would you read that aloud with me? Ready? Begin. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord. He's the conqueror. He's the one that pays for sin. He's the one that saves souls. He's the one that changes life. What a different conqueror. What a difference. And then, before we get to communion, I suggest to you, he's a different Christ. The word Christ, we often think of Christ being Jesus' last name, kind of, maybe just in our brains, kind of Jesus Christ, like those are his two names. The word Christ is, is really a title. It's a word that simply means Messiah or Savior. And, and that's why they would say, is not this the Christ? Is he the Christ? John the Baptist, go find out. Is he the Christ? They, that wasn't a name that his parents gave him. 
It was a title. Jesus was his name. Uh, he has many names. We understand Emmanuel, God with us. But Jesus, they shall call his name Jesus, and we call him Jesus Christ. He was given that title because he is a Savior. But he's not the only one that, that has, throughout history, that has tried to say they were a Savior, or maybe they were a Messiah, but he was a different Christ. Why was he different? Because of the point that we just said, after his finished work on the cross and his bodily resurrection and ascension back into heaven, what do we have? He is now a high priest living, interceding on our behalf. The word Christ, that simply means Savior or Messiah. And what does it mean? What did Jesus, what is, what is different about Jesus than almost any other religious leader? And again, Jesus is not just a religious leader. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But what is different? Almost every other man or religion will tell you, you have to do this. Do this enough. Well, what you ask people, are you going to heaven when you die? And many times, what will they say? They'll say, well, I'm trying. I'm trying to hopefully my good works outweigh my bad. And most religions will tell you, do this or do that. Do enough of this and do, do a little of that and get this out of your life and get this into your life. And what did Jesus say? I've done it all. I finished the work. It is finished. I finished the work of redemption. You don't have to do anything other than place your faith and trust in me alone except my free gift of salvation. I did it for you. That's a different Christ. What a difference. He didn't tell us to work our way to heaven. He, he invited us to accept his finished work on our behalf. He didn't tell us to exhaust ourselves trying to reach his standard. He told us to rest in his perfection. He didn't tell us to give enough to earn his love. He told us he freely gave us his love that we could never earn on our own. And by the way, what a different Christ and what a difference that knowing Jesus as your personal Savior makes. Why do we focus on the differences that we see, a, a different king and a different conception and a different childbirth and a different childhood and a different career and really a different type of criminal and a, and a different conqueror and a different Christ? What, why does all of that matter? Because the work that he does is different than any other place, in any other church, in, in any other truth, in any other denomination or man-made system of religion. Jesus said, you don't have to earn your way, but if you'll accept my free gift of salvation, you'll pass from death unto life. It's not a process that you have to hope you keep being good enough. No, I paid the price. What does the Bible say? If any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become what? They're all new. What a difference he makes. If you saw my family some 35 years ago, you'd understand the difference that Jesus can make in a family. A single mom working a couple jobs to raise a, 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 an only child at that time, and, and, and some anger and tension in the home at times. It was a loving home, but, but she was under a lot of stress, and I wasn't the easiest kid. I definitely was not a perfect child like Jesus, all right? And my mom knew every principle I had by first name basis and, and those things, and, and a young a single mom in her 20s that was doing what a lot of singles in their 20s would do, that she was lovingly, sacrificially caring for her child, but also trying to be a young lady in her 20s, and I can remember parties and entertainment that wouldn't be pleasing to God. It would be normal in the world. It wasn't anything criminal necessarily, but it wouldn't be entertaining and substances in the refrigerator and things that were being smoked and parties. And I remember those things and what changed? My mom got a self-help book and began to read it and we turned over a new leaf. No, what changed was we accepted Christ as Savior and he changed our whole family. 
He changed the way that we walked and we talked and we loved. He changed our family history, and today there will be four generations of my family in a Bible-believing church in California today. To God be the glory. That's not man doing that. It's the difference that only Christ can do. And, and today, coming from several generations of, 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 of marriages, that, and I'm not against it, I'm not criticizing or condemning my family, but failed marriages and, and different things in those marriages, coming from that, God in my own life to this point has allowed my wife and I to enjoy 22 years of, of marriage together and of five children that He's blessed us with and in church every week to this point and trying to serve the Lord. I'm not tooting my own horn. What am I saying? If you would have seen where we were to where we are today, it's not because of how good we are. It's because of the power, the saving power of Jesus Christ. What a difference. Why do these differences matter? Because He's the only one that can do that. He's the only one that can change a heart. He's the only one that can pay a sin debt. He's the only one that can take us to heaven when we die. This church isn't going to take you to heaven. That baptistry isn't going to take you to heaven. Those offering boxes, please use them, are not going to take you to heaven. None of this is going to take you to heaven. That's what's different about Jesus. He can change everything. There's something different about him. So my question to you this morning, do you know him? I didn't say he makes your life easy. Oh, we've had some heartaches and some tears. We've had some tensions in our families. In our, in our, the, I told you the highlights of four generations in church and serving the Lord, but there have been some heartaches and some hurts, some unkind words that I've said and things I've done, and I've not been the perfect husband or the perfect parent. Oh, it's not all easy sledding when you get saved, but there is, we sorrow not as others who have no hope. There is a grace we have access to that those that don't know Christ know nothing of. There are answers in Scripture that we can find that we'd be lost without if we didn't know Him. Oh, it's not all easy. It's not, okay, I get saved, and He's the magic genie, and my life just becomes all roses and and unicorns and skipping through the flowers. No. Oh, no. Sometimes when you start to follow Him, it gets harder. Sometimes there's persecution that comes. Sometimes there's misunderstandings and pain and hurt. Doesn't mean it's all going to be easy, but it's so, so different when you know him. What a difference. Which leads us, and by the way, before I go to the final point, if you don't know him this morning, if you don't know what I'm talking about, there's never been a time and a place where the Bible says you've been born again. Don't leave this morning without getting that settled in your heart and your life. Let him change your eternity and let him change your earthly purpose and priorities and direction. He can do it. I've watched him do it. He can, he can change everything. He can change your desires. He can change your priorities. He can change your family. He can change your communication. He can change it all if we'll let him. Let him change your life forever if you've never been saved, which leads us, the difference of Christ, it leads us to the last point, a different communion. We're going to partake in communion, and it's really where we commune. We really remember. Some, sometimes we call it the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. And I didn't come up with this idea. It's in Scripture. Jesus could have done anything that he wanted to cause us to remember who he was and what he's done. 
He could have used any symbolism. He could have used any ceremony. He could have used anything. But for some reason, as he was about to die in, in the week after Palm Sunday, in just a, just a couple of days, he's going to have his last gathering with his disciples, the 12 that were closest to him. And, and he's going to sit with them at the Last Supper, and he's going to talk with them, and he's going to serve them. He's going to wash their feet. He's going to tell them, serve one another as I've served you. He's going to tell them, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, the love you have for, for me. And then he's going to take some bread, and he's going to break it. And he's going to pass it around. He's going to say, this symbolizes my body, which will be broken for you. And then he's going to pass some juice, and he's going to say, this symbolizes my blood, that will be spilled for you. And then we're going to find, Paul is going to instruct the church in multiple places. We're going to see in a couple different places in the New Testament, the instructions for the church to do the same thing. I want to say a few things by way of introduction, and then we're going to partake of communion together. Number one, I want to say this. There's nothing mystical or magical about partaking in communion. There, are, there have been, man likes to mess up Bible truths at times. There have been denominations that have taught the doctrine of transubstantiation, meaning when you eat this wafer, it somehow mystically becomes the body of Christ inside of you. And when you drink this juice, it's just, by the way, it's just Welch's grape juice, okay? We didn't order it from some holy blessed, it's just Welch's grape juice from Costco or something. I hope it's Welch's. That's the best flavor of grape juice. I think, <laughs> I think it's Welch's. It's just grape juice. There's, there's nothing magical. When you drink it, it doesn't become the body of Christ and have this, this crazy power in your life. It's just a symbol to remember something that means so much. So I want to say that first. Secondly, I want to say it has nothing to do with going to heaven. This is a remembrance. And third, I want to say this. If you're here this morning, it should only be partaken in by those who have a testimony of salvation. If you're here this morning and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, according to Scripture, you should not partake in this. That doesn't mean when it comes, just allow the plate to pass. This is something that somebody that has placed their faith and trust in Christ alone as Savior would say, I believe when I'm, when, and when we'll have uh, music playing in a moment, when we are passing the wafer, I'd encourage you to just stop and remember, maybe walk through his life in your mind's eye. Spend some time in prayer, thanking him for the different Savior that he is. The different answers that he offers that no one else can offer. The different death that he was willing to die for you and for me. And remember his crucifixion, his body that was broken. We, we pass unwafered, uh, unleavened wafers because leaven in the Bible at times is, is, is used as a picture of sin, a type of sin. We believe his body had no sin in it, so they're unleavened. We use unfermented grape juice. Again, at times you'll see fermentation used as a type or a symbolism, a picture of spoiling. And there was no spoiling or sin in his body. And so you have unleavened wafer and unleavened juice. There's nothing magical or mystical, but it is very special. You know, there's nothing magical when we, we, we do similar things to remember special things. There's nothing magical about a birthday cake. But most of the time, when we celebrate a birthday with a family member in our culture, in our society, we get a birthday cake with a number of candles, and we blow them out. Why? We want to stop and remember and appreciate the gift that that person is in our lives and rejoice that God has given them another year of life. That doesn't make them any more alive. It doesn't add any more years to their life. It's just, in our culture, a ceremony or a symbolism of us celebrating that person, 
This is simply an opportunity as God's people in the week between Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday for us to stop. He was brought in on that borrowed donkey and everybody is singing his praises. But it won't be long until he buckles beneath the weight of the cross with his back disfigured, maybe even organs showing, bones protruding, just ripped. The Bible says his face, you couldn't even tell it was a man. Beard plucked from his face and the, cr- the thorn of crowns plaited into his head. Deep, thick, giant crowns, wa- thorns. Why would he do that? He did that because he loved you and he loved me. And this is an opportunity for us to take some time to think about the sacrifice of Christ to really think about what we're talking about today and next Sunday, and to remember those things. It's a different communion. Paul instructed the Corinthians, for I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it. We're not told how often to do it as a church. Here we generally do it four to five times a year in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. We're showing that we believe and we're so grateful for his payment on our behalf. At this time, I'll ask the men to come forward and line up here in the front and Janine to come to the piano. And in just a moment, we're gonna pass the wafer. And I want each of you to remember all that Christ did on your behalf. From his different conception, to his different birth, to his different childhood, to his different career, to his short-lived time, being lauded as a king, to his crucifixion as a criminal, to when he conquered death and now reigns as our Christ. I want you to, let's leave that last verse, that last passage up there on the screen if we can. And I want you maybe to spend some time reading those words and remember that this wafer is unleavened because he was without sin and it's broken because his body was broken for us. And I want you to think about the road that he walked for a few moments and we'll close with with a word of prayer as we partake in that at this time, Janine will begin to play and the men will distribute the wafer. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.